Father, I do pray that the desire of all of our hearts this morning would be to see your glory, to be fixated on, upon you, upon your, your holiness, your majesty, what's honoring to you, what's pleasing to you, your very character and nature of your holiness and your grandeur, God. May we be captivated by it. This is something that we, we fight to do. It's a struggle that we have. In our flesh, God, we're so easily entertained, consumed, distracted by lesser things. But yet, God, when these moments where we see you for who you are, when the actual genuine prayer of the heart is, God, show me your glory, those are the times, God, where we find ourselves most satisfied, most wisdom, perfect love, perfect righteousness, mercy and grace. And so, God, I pray that it is um, our prayer today that, that we would see your glory, that you would be pleased and revealed to allow us to, to do that, to behold you by eyes of faith, and that you would speak to us through your word today. Your word, God, is food for the famished ones, as we've sung. So plant it deep within our hearts, cause it to grow and to bear fruit for your glory and for our good and for the, for the enjoyment and blessing of others. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, I hope everybody is somewhat thought out at this point. Um, it's good. It's good to be here. Good to be here to gather together. It's good to be here to worship. Appreciate all the first world blessings that we have. And um, worship God because he's worthy of all of our praise and glory for now and forever and ever. Amen. Um, today as we finish up the introduction to Romans... I just briefly want us to take a look back at what it is that we've seen in the first several verses of the book, and then as we'll wrap up the introduction, Lord willing, today, and then we'll dive into um, some more of, of what Paul writes to the church in Rome later next week. We've seen so far in verse 1, the Lord's servant, Paul emphasizes his own calling, his ministry, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And so we've, we took a look at the Lord's servant in verse 1. In verse 2, we took a, a look at the Lord's promise, how the promise of the gospel was preserved through the prophets. We saw that again this morning in the Sunday school class. We've seen it in our Sunday school series of, of looking at Caleb, looking at Joseph, looking at these people that had their eyes fixed on the promise. And if you ever want to find an encouraging um, passage of scripture in which you can helps you understand how the prophets of old viewed the promise of God, viewed God, viewed their lives. Read through the chap the eleventh chapter of the book of Hebrews, and you can find that they were not looking toward the land that God had promised them per se. Their eyes were set upon a greater land which God will give to them, but it is being withheld from them in its fullness until we all can inherit that land together, as the last verse in Hebrews 11 teaches us. 
So we've seen how God, we've seen the Lord's servant, we've seen the Lord's promise being preserved, carried along all throughout the Old Testament. Last week we looked at the Lord's Son and we tried to wrap our mind around um, the Lord Jesus Christ, his divinity, his humanity, doing the best that we can. We could have done sermon, a whole entire sermon series uh, just upon that. But we wanted to take a glimpse at, at the person the Lord Jesus Christ in his divinity and his humanity, this incredibly um, simple yet complex union of those two natures of Christ. Neither one of them never ever compromised, always fully held out in perfection. Certainly it took God <laughs> to do that. And um, so we looked at that last week and him being the source of our salvation. And today we want to look at the Lord's harvest as we continue to expand upon what we've seen in Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1, verses 5 through 7 today. And we want to look at the Lord's harvest. And I was encouraged this week as I thought about God doing his work and, and bringing his people into his kingdom through the gospel message, through his servants, through his son, and how the, the harvest just keeps going on and going on until Jesus returns. And Jesus, I was encouraged by Jesus' words in Luke chapter 10, verse tw um, 2. Luke 10, 2, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And Paul would see himself that way. Paul would see himself, as we saw in verse 1, as a servant a servant sent out into the harvest field to be used in whatever capacity God wanted to use him in, being perfectly happy just being a servant, but having this calling of God, this, this um, being set apart to this office of apostle and the wonderful privilege that he saw in that, but also the weight and the responsibility in his apostolic ministry as well and the uniqueness of it. Paul always saw himself, I get this feeling, it's the, more, the longer... The Lord gives me life, and the more that I read through the Bible, I continue to see Paul as being deeply indebted and grateful to the grace of God poured out into his life to do what he was called to do, which we'll see today. Just never, never forgetting, like, this is sheer grace that God is working in my life. Not just saving me, but then, like, equipping me and calling me to this work of apostle. And there's an, a, a tremendous amount of of stuff in that that we can apply to ourselves. And do you really view yourself as a recipient of divine grace and therefore anything that God allows you to do as a part of his kingdom work is just sheerly um, something that we should be incredibly thankful for and that keeps us humble. He sees himself that way. He's laser focused on the gospel. He is not willing to compromise at all on what the gospel is because the gospel is God's means of saving souls. So you don't want to compromise. You don't want to waver on that. You've got to be really clear what it is that the gospel is. If it is the tool of salvation, then you've got to stick with the gospel. You've got to know what it is and preach it clearly and preach it loudly. And we'll talk about that today too. And he always saw, though, like, that there was, more, there was more field to be inhabited and occupied, if you will. Think about what it is that Paul says, right? Part of his reason in writing to the church in Rome is so that the, he might encourage them in their walk, but he would tell them in chapter 15, verse 28, that his, part of his goal in ministering to them and building them up is so that they would supply his needs so he can go to Spain. Like Rome was not the end goal. He always had his eye set upon where's the next 
part of the harvest field that God is sending me out and equipping me to preach the gospel so that other people might be saved. He just always saw himself on the precipice of kingdom work and the expansion of it and light being going out and invading the darkness and the kingdom of darkness of this world is, is shrinking while the kingdom of light and the Son of God is continuing to expand and not just expand but to glow with brilliant um, glory as the work of Christ and the gospel message was going out. I mean, that was like, that was Paul. And I oftentimes wonder and consider like, man, how much of that stuff occupies my own heart. I mean, I think you guys know me well enough to know by now that the stuff that I'm, I'm saying to you guys, it's kind of just bleeding out of me of who I am because I'm thinking about it for myself. Do I really have a heart for these things? Do, is, do, I, do I want to see the kingdom grow? Do I want to see the kingdom come? Is really the goodness and the glory and the grace of God shown in Christ that important to me? How often do I think about him how often do I consider what we have here just like an incredible gift of God's grace? Or we're always thinking, oh, but I wish things were like this, or why don't we have this, or why don't we do this, or why don't we plan this? And it's like, okay, planning is good. Proverbs says we should plan. That's good stuff. But man, can we plan with just hearts of thankfulness and gratitude for what we have and where we are too? Like, can we do that? Um, and yet wanting to see and being motivated for God's glory to be preached and proclaimed. And Paul had that mindset, and that's what I want our mindset to be as well. I was thinking of um, 1 Corinthians 3, 6. Paul would say, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And he's just like, I just want to go, and I just want to plant, I just want to water. And in doing that, I just want to see the growth that God brings about. I want to go to Ethiopia, and I want to, I want to train and teach pastors how to, how to counsel and shepherd their flock using the word of God. I want to plant that. I want to water that. And I want to see what, God, what growth God might bring out of it. I want, to, I want to go wherever God might call us to go and give us the privilege of going to plant and to water and to see the growth that he might bring about. And if he's saying, look, just work in the field of Vacaville, then I'm cool with that. Work in the field of Solano County. I'm cool with that. Wherever he might send us and enable us to go, I think we should be thankful. But to do it and to do it well. To do it well. To do it with excellence. Um, Paul's desire is to plant and water, always on the edge of capturing new territory for Christ. And that is what we see in our text today. So uh, we're going to take a look at Romans chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, specifically this morning. But I'm going to begin in verse 1, read through verse 7. We're going to hopefully um, tie it all together here, and God will be glorified. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then we begin in verse 5. It's with the mindset of the lordship of Christ being most present in Paul's mind and our mind that we go into verse 5. 
through whom? Through Christ, right? Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's five things we want to look at this morning concerning God's harvest. And the first is what we see in verse 5 is that God's harvest comes about by his grace. God's harvest is by his grace. Paul would say, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. He's tying together the grace of God poured out in his life with his apostolic office. And he views all of the apostles in that way because he says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. He's referring to himself and all the other apostles as well that he um, is privileged to count himself among. Remember, his goal is to go to Spain. His apostolic office is one where he continues to preach the gospel. He wants to see the gospel go out. And he tells them that his plans is to go to them so that they might then support him and his continued work in Spain. And he never forgets the privilege that God has given him in being able to do this. He's, his, his office of apostleship is marked by a, it is a demonstration of the grace of God in his life. Not only has God been so incredibly gracious to him in saving him, which we covered in verse 1, where Paul talk, calls himself a servant, and you go back and you read Paul's conversion story and the, the direction he was going and where he ended up going is nothing. The only explanation you can give for that is divine intervention. He sees, he's very aware of the grace, unmerited favor is what grace is, Right? unmerited favor, that he now has the favor of God poured out in his life. And it was something that he did not earn. In fact, he was on the road of doing things that would um, were just a display of his enmity with God. The sheer grace of God poured out in his life to save him. And then his office of, as apostle is another outworking and pouring out of God's grace in his life. Whatever, whatever your gifting is that God has given you, whatever your role in the church is, whether it's, it's working with children, whether it's singing, whether it's preaching, it doesn't matter. Look at it through the lens of a gift, as a gift of God's grace and a demonstration of his grace in your life. Because I guarantee you this, whatever it is that he has gifted you to do and that you are doing by his gifting, you and I do not deserve to do. We don't deserve to even be in the kingdom, let alone to like be able to be privileged to work in the kingdom, to think that God might use you or me to actually bring about like divine, eternal, spiritual changes in people's lives. It's incredible. It's an incredible privilege. And he sees himself as he's received grace and apostleship. When I was down at the, the missions conference a couple weeks ago, weekends ago, it was this topic that me and one of the other missionaries were talking about. And so I started asking her, you know, share with me. She's been, a, she's, this lady's, she's got her doctorate. She's written a ton of biblical counseling books. And in the biblical counseling world, she's like a big name. And so I'm just talking to her and I'm saying, you know, um, 
you've done a lot. Like God has really like done a lot. You've accomplished a lot of in your in your life. And um, how do you continue to how do you continue to do it? How do you continue to press forward? How do you do it cheerfully? And it was this it was this idea. Everything that I have is a demonstration of God's grace in my life. There is nothing like being aware, acutely aware of the one who is really in control of all things and working in your life and the one who has gifted you and the one who has called you that will keep you humble and thankful into being used by him in whatever capacity that he allows you to be used and calls you to be used. And some people he uses to, be, to get their doctorates and to write books and to travel around the world and speak nationally and do all these things. And, and there are, um, I think, you know, people that fall into the trap and the temptation of thinking, man, this, I'm, really, I'm really good. I'm kind of like really good at this thing. Um, I'm going to write some books. Oh, people are buying my books. Yeah, I'm not good. Maybe I'm actually great at doing this stuff. And then pretty soon, like, your head, there's just not enough room for your head or anybody else in the room. And the thing that keeps you humble and the thing that keeps you thankful is remembering the grace of God working in your life that allows you to do anything. Just, just be happy, like, planting and watering. I've said it a million times, like, just be happy being a nobody. Just be thankful and see the grace of God working in, in your life, working in the life of, of this church, the seeing God's glory go out and proclaimed. God's harvest is done by his grace. But secondly, God's harvest is by the gospel. God's harvest comes about by the preaching of the gospel. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. It's an interesting phrase there, the obedience of faith. I actually think that the King James Version puts it well, obedience to the faith. Because here Paul is joining together this idea that there is a relationship between faith and obedience. And he's not talking about the obedience that comes after You've expressed faith in Christ. He's talking about the component of obedience that is involved in saving faith itself. Paul's desire is to bring it about. His task is to bring about the obedience of faith. Paul wants to make something happen through the preaching of the gospel. And it's, it's the obedience to the faith. John Calvin said, faith is properly that way in which we obey the gospel. Faith is properly the, the way that we obey the gospel. See, there's an aspect of obedience to faith. The gospel itself is what demands a response. See, we tend to think of the gospel as good news, and in, and in full transparency, um, this is where I failed in my conversation on the plane flight that I hint, kind of told you guys a little bit about last week in the sermon, is that I presented the gospel as good news. We've talked about sin and all that stuff, but the gospel also demands a response. 
And we call people to obey the gospel by faith. When you look at the scriptures, you see that this is true. One of the, um, I think, clearer examples of this is in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 is the story of Paul and Silas, verse 25. They were praying and singing hymns as they're in jail in Philippi. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prisons were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened. Everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what's Paul's response? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. This man, in this most desperate hour, appeals to his prisoners. You're supposed to be taking orders from me. Now I'm coming to you and I'm asking you, what must I do to be saved? And their response is believe. That this is an expression of obedience. The, response, the gospel demands a response, and that response is belief. It's faith. But then we also consider, well, how does one believe? And we know that Scripture teaches us that belief or faith comes about by the working of the Holy Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, by G, uh, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And so this, this, this call, this desire that he has what must I do to be saved is a working of the Spirit of God in his life. And that way when Paul and Silas say the work that you must do to be obedient to in order to be saved is to believe, is to have faith, it's coming from a working of the Spirit of God in his life. And it's because of that that it's not a works-based faith. His obedience is not an expression of his own works to save himself. His obedience is an expression of the working of God, the Spirit of God, in his life that opens up his eyes to his need of salvation. And the call is, what must I do to be saved? And they don't say, okay, we'll show up at church, and then you got to go through the discipleship program, and then you got to do this and this and this and this. They just lay it out very clearly. What must you do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they open up the scriptures to him. And man, you want to see God's work being done in someone's life. You open up the Word of God and you watch God do what God does. It's a wonderful reminder to us. It's how we're able to remember this incredible gift of justification by faith, right? Paul's, he's going to talk about that just a little bit later on in Romans. This gift of justification by faith. But the demand, the requirement for obedience to the gospel by faith to be expressed. 
See, the gospel goes out, people hear the gospel, and then the demand is submit to the gospel call. God is the one who supplies the ability for that to be able to take place. God is the one who supplies the desire for faith, for obedience. Faith is being a gift from him. And God is the one who opens up the eyes for obedience in that way. But this is also why obedience is such a hallmark of the Christian life. Because those who don't practice obedience don't have true saving faith because obedience is such a a central component to salvation. And it's also why a true Christian's life is marked by genuine obedience. See, the gospel, the gospel provides what it demands. The gospel goes out and it preaches justification by faith. Then the gospel de- supplies the faith in order for someone to be saved. And this is why we never have to be ashamed of the gospel and why Paul was never ashamed of the gospel in Romans 1.16. is when you proclaim the gospel in its entirety, and the proclamation goes out, and then the command is given to come to Christ and believe in him by faith and by faith alone. God is the one that supplies the ability to do so. So the kingdom of God comes about not only by his grace, But by the gospel, I think it's important for us to remember that when we share the gospel, there must be a call of submission. It's not just just good news to be heard and to be thought about and going, oh, that's some really interesting stuff. The gospel is the good news that demands a, a response to it. And it, do we include that at all in the sharing of the gospel with, with others? Or do we just present, would we just put it out there as good news and then, hey, you do what you want with it? Would you read, read through the book of Acts and read how they preach the gospel of justification and the work of Lord Jesus Christ and the call to come to him. Not only is the harvest a work of grace, not only does it expand by the gospel, but the harvest is ultimately for God's glory, which you see again in verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. It's for his glory. It's for the sake of his name. It's for his benefit. It's for his glory. Because all obedience is, is of God, God is the one who gets the glory. And rightly so. Paul would say it like this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What's what's his, his thought right after he says, right, we've been chosen in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And then the very next words that come out of his mouth are to the praise of his glorious grace. I mean, you can't get around 
the, the display of the glorious grace of God. We've talked about the grace of God being displayed, but the glory of God that is displayed through the gospel. That I mean, you think about it. You think about where Paul is coming from, right? I mean, we live so far this side of the cross that I think sometimes we lose touch with the reality of the world that Paul is operating in by, by which we should be operating in. And that is this gospel message that had been preserved, that had not been fully disclosed or clear for so many years, is now completely obvious and open through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Like Paul is not far removed from that, and it has absolutely gripped him and infected him and, and so he has this urgency, which we'll see later in, Rome, in Romans, this obligation and this urgency to preach the gospel. He sees it as being this display of the glory of God going out and rippling over the entire world. And he sees himself as being involved in it, part of it, thankful for it. And he has very clearly what was now concealed has now been completely revealed in the glory of God presented in the face of the sun is unhindered. I mean, it is declared. You think about the presentation of the gospel is a wonderful opportunity to put the glory of God on display. We're not just saying, oh, come and look at this, like this thing, this little thing that I found. What we're saying is, what we, well, what we were saying last Wednesday night in Psalm 34, I want you to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And I want you to worship him and proclaim his glory and his greatness and his grace with me. I have seen it, and now let's do it corporately together. You're, you're asking people, you're calling people to come and be satisfied with the glory of God in their lives. And for them, and, and you're saying, this is essentially what you're doing. You're saying, I, I am so convinced, I am so convinced that the glory of God is the best thing that there is in all of existence, that you can prop anything up against the glory of God and make a comparison, and whatever that thing is, it will utterly fail. Nothing compares to the glory of God. And that glory comes shining through in the gospel message. And it's all for the praise of his glorious grace. It's for the sake of his name. God is interested in preserving his name and God is interested in having his name proclaimed. And what, to, to what ends? And the harvest is not only a, a demonstration, a proclamation of God's glory, but it's global. Fourthly, God's harvest is global to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all nations. This is the goal, the telos, if you will. It's the proclamation, it's of the gospel, it's the call to be obedient in faith to the call of the gospel for God's glory, that his glory may be known, enjoyed, loved, anticipated, shared among all the nations. 
in the scripture reading that Jared had for us this morning in Revelation 7. It's so wonderful because it assures us that it's actually going to happen. Let me, let's, let's turn, if you will, again. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 7. This is the pointing out of a certainty. Paul's desire is to proclaim the gospel for the obedience of faith, for the name of Christ among all the nations. And this is what God allows John to see in his vision in the book of Revelation. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. For the Lamb sits upon the throne clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and shuffling their feet and muttering under a very quiet voice. No. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne. All the angels, I don't know how many that is, but I think all is a very, very large number, myriads and myriads of angels standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Right? The first word out of their mouth is, it is finished, it's done. Amen. So, may, may it, may, so it be. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You know that this is a song that will never get old when we sing it in his presence. I'm never going to come to a place where I'm like, the glory, the wisdom, the thanksgiving, the honor, and the power, and the might is just not as good as it was when I first got here. Like, it's God's eternal glory. It's God's eternal wisdom. It's God's eternal might, eternal honor and power. That which, that which is in God and all that is in God and has always been in God and will always be in God is what will be satisfactory to us always. God's glory and his, his majesty, it doesn't ebb and flow. It's not greater some days than others. It's the type of glory that shines eternally and satisfies eternally. I mean, we just can't fathom something like that. And yet that's the, what the, that's the, the picture that's painted for us in Scripture because we've because we live in this world and we're like constantly being drawn to like look to the hills, Psalm 121. Where does my help come from? It comes to the one who is eternal and divine and immutable in nature always. And he, as we get to in the, in the fifth point, he loves me and he's shown me his grace and he's given me this wonderful peace. But God's calling the proclamation of his glory is 
global. Again, I love the word, I love the way that Jesus puts it in John 10, 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. It's painting this picture of him being with his flock in its entirety, completion, that will come to him. The obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all nations. And he says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Including you. Yes, even you who live in Rome. You got to understand that Rome was just like, it was just a sick place to live as far as worldliness and sin went. Slavery was rampant, sexual immorality and things that they would do, sick, depraved. And he's like, the glory of the gospel is even shining among you guys in Rome, including you and all who are called to belong. You hear the voice of the shepherd going out, the call of the gospel to belong to him. I mean, the great, one of the great comforts of the Christian is that I belong to Jesus. Belonging to him is an incredible privilege. And we're reminded that the call of the gospel is going out. God is calling people to belong him from among the most depraved and vile and wicked places on the planet and in the hearts of those who we thought man that person does not stand a chance you've ever met those people before where you go certainly God couldn't save them but once were some of us but now we have been washed we've been cleansed Right? 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And we belong to him. And the last is, fifth point is the harvest comes with precious gifts. The harvest is by God's grace. The harvest comes about by the gospel. The harvest comes for the glory of God. The harvest is global. And the harvest comes with precious gifts. We see in verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God, and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I cannot imagine how comforting these words probably were to his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ who were living in Rome and were on the brink of intentional extermination in Rome. If you think about what the Roman believers endured, it's, it's incredible. And he wants them to know, you're not, you've not been abandoned. You have not been forgotten. You were loved by God. Always remember that your circumstances in life the heat, if you will, 
that comes into your life should never cause you to doubt whether or not God loves you if you're in Christ. In love, he predestined you. In love, he called you. In love, he keeps you. In love, he will perfectly display to you for all of eternity. God loves his people. God loves his bride with an, an, with an unrivaled love. To all those who are Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, to be loved by God is to be a saint. Sainthood has really one requirement, experiencing and having the love of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, it's not, the, the incredible thing is that God doesn't call them with some sort of mechanical, unwilling love that is, comes out of an obligation, but comes out of his own free will. And not only are the, is there love, but then he says grace to you, God's unmerited favor and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The believer is mindful that they live in a world saturated by God's love, by God's grace and God's peace in their lives. Sometimes I know we don't feel like I, live, I have much peace. My, 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 my world seems like there's, it's in turmoil. Feel like I'm being tossed to and fro. I feel like I'm just like I'm beat up. I'm tired. I'm beat up. My work is demanding of me. Things at home are not the best. And we and, and we live in, in a world where these things are just regular occurrences. And you speak about peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How can that be? When I don't see much peace, I don't feel much peace, my, my response would be, well, where have you set your eyes? And what are you thinking about and what are you focusing upon? Because I tell you, when you come into the throne room of God, I mean, think about this psalm often. Psalm 131, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, right? That's what we should be doing, right? Our eyes should be lifted up. I should be occupying my mind with things that are too great and too marvelous for me, namely God and the goodness that he's shown me in Christ. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. That's what we, you know, in order to really understand the grace of God, experience the peace of God in our lives, a lot of times what we must do is to calm and quiet our souls and to occupy our minds with things that are too marvelous and great for us. We're too busy looking down. I'm looking, I'm looking at my, you know, I'm looking at my bank account and I'm looking at my job and I'm looking at my friends and I'm looking at my family and I'm looking at responsibilities and all of these things. 
And you do that, your life, yeah, of course, you're gonna be, your life will be sucked dry of any sort of peace, contentedness, happiness, and joy. The believer, the Christian's peace, content, contentedness doesn't come from anything that's down here. It comes from everything that as I look my, lift my eyes and I go, oh, yeah, I remember I'm loved by you and I remember what Christ has done for me. And all of a sudden, my perspective changes. The peace that passes understanding transcends everything that I'm going through right now. Calvin said that through Christ, all of God's blessings come to us. In short, if we lack the peace and the contentedness in those things, we should be looking to Christ and find in him the perfect display and proof of God's loving kindness. So we think of the Lord's harvest. It comes about by his grace. It comes about by the proclamation of the gospel. It comes about for his glory. It comes about all over the world. It's global. And it supplies the precious gifts of namely what he's mentioned here today, love and grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Prepare our hearts to take communion together here in a few moments. We think of what it is that we're about to, the privilege of what it is that we are about to partake of. We have no clearer demonstration of the love of God than in the work of Christ upon the cross. And when we look upon... I mean, one of the things that I pray that happens is we're partaking of communion. You're thinking of, you're looking upon this, this cracker and upon this juice, and you're thinking of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, and you're thinking of what he endured on your behalf, receiving the, the, the weight of your sin upon himself, paying it completely so that you might be pardoned and set free. I pray that peace would infiltrate. Be mindful of the love of God shown to us in Christ and, and, and worship would ensue. And so this in our time of communion, it's a time of, it's a time of worship. It's a time of, of, of just clear, genuine examination. What am I looking to to supply me, my joy, my, my peace? Do I really set my eyes upon the glory of God? Do I have any interest in really sharing the gospel? Do I have an appreciation for God's grace at all in my life? I mean, am I mindful of any of these things that I've heard for the past 40 minutes? It's a time of examination. It's a time of confession. Just clear, honest confession to the Lord. And it's also a time of assurance of knowing that his love and his grace in your life continues to be poured out. Our unfaithfulness does not nullify his faithfulness. <laughs> Can I, amen. <laughs> and so we partake of this communion time together um, in that way. The elements are on the tables. 
behind you. You can grab those and return back to your seat for some time of prayer. And then we will partake of communion together shortly.